Good morning. We're in our second week of a message series where we're using some of the Psalms to look at what it means to be blessed by God. You know, the Psalms have been used in worship ever since they were written some 2,000 years ago. Used in ancient Israel all the way through the Christian church. And they've been spoken, they've been sung, they've been chanted, they've been prayed, they've even been danced to. When it comes to, the, to worship, the Psalms are participatory. So we should participate. Last week we read the whole of Psalm 1 together. And today we're in Psalm 29. And I'm only going to ask you to say one word of the Psalm. But you have to shout it. Okay, it's a shout, it's a cheer. You have to be loud. In verse 9 it reads, The voice of the Lord twists the oaks. He strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory. That's your one word, glory. When I get to that point, you have to shout glory as loud as you can. All in his temple cry glory. That's what the Bible says to do, so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're all going to cry glory. We're going to cheer God today. So as soon as I get there and say, and all in his temple cry, you're going to shout at the top of your lungs glory. Got it? We've only got one shot at this, so please don't mess it up. Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And all in his temple cry, glory. Not bad for your first try. Now listen carefully to these last two verses. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Amen. Thanks be to God. You know, whenever I hear the predictions and speculations about what lies ahead for us in the coming year, I always think of the opening words of Charles Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities. The story was set in the late 1800s during the brutality of the French Revolution when the guillotine was cutting off people's heads on a daily basis. And Dickens wrote, It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom and the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief and the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In other words, he concludes, it's just like every other year. No matter when we live, we always perceive it to be the best and the worst time to be alive. So 2016, we can confidently say it will be the best of times and it will be the worst of times, just like every year. One thing I do know is this year we're going to need to be blessed with courage. There will be tough things that, we'll, that we will need to face this year. Personal challenges, uh, events in our nation, craziness around the globe. We're going to need some courage. 
And I believe one of God's greatest blessings is that he gives courage to his people. One of the hymns that we're going to sing today in the traditional service is called God of Grace and God of Glory. And there's a repeating line in that hymn that says, Grant us courage, grant us wisdom for the living of these days. It's just as true as when that hymn was written over 100 years ago as it is today. We need God's courage to bless us as we serve the Lord in our day. You see, I think Psalm 29 gives us the key on how to be blessed with courage. This psalm is all about the power and the glory of God. King David wrote Psalm 29 as a fight song. It was a song sung by the home team to sort of psych out the other team. It's a song of confidence in God and and extols God's power. David wrote it as a protest against the gods of the enemies of Israel, the Canaanites, and their god Baal. Baal was a storm god. The Canaanites thought that Baal was the divine power in a thunderstorm. And David and the people of Israel challenged that belief, said that there was only one true God, Yahweh. And Yahweh can't be contained by a storm or a cloud or the wind or any created thing. Yahweh is the creator God, and he's the power beyond all things. Yahweh is the creator of all, and so poetically speaking, all creation shouts its praises to him. And then David summarizes everything in the last two verses. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Because our strength and confidence can be in this powerful God, we can live with peace in our hearts. We don't have to be afraid. We're certainly not afraid of Baal, the false god of the Canaanites. And here's the thing. What's the connector between this confidence in God and our peace? Well, I think it's courage, courage. Courage is what connects God's strength to your life. Courage is what allows God's strength to kind of bless your life with inner peace. We see the greatness of God, we have confidence in who God is, and that gives us the courage we need for the living of these days. And the result of living with that confidence and courage is a sense of peace even when the world uh, seems uncertain. God's strength and our peace. Courage is such a great word. We would all like to think that we have a certain amount of courage to to live courageously. You know, given the huge pile of problems we're all going to face this year, we're going to need some courage. I mean, and courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to do what you need to do even when you're afraid or anxious. To act in Christ's power even when your knees are knocking and your stomach is doing cartwheels. Courage doesn't mean, uh, you know, being brave or acting tough or macho. Being courageous is different than being brave. A brave person kind of spits in the face of danger. A Rambo, a Chuck Norris, a Captain America. No fear at all as they charge up the hill confident in their own strength. Courage, though, is something for ordinary people. It's for people who are gripped by fear. But with God's help, you do it anyway. Courage means taking action even in the presence of fear. And so for the Christian, courage comes from recognizing who God is, his power, his might, his glory, and then living that way, living in that strength, leaning on that strength when your strength is gone. That's where the peace comes from, knowing God has the strength when you don't. David wrote this psalm because that's the way David lived. If I were to take a survey and ask, you know, what story in the Bible best illustrates courage? I'd be willing to bet good money 
that the number one answer would be the story of young David going up against the giant Goliath. I mean, it's a legendary feat of courage. It's the best story in the whole Bible about courage. David versus Goliath. I mean, it's epic. It's 3D. It's IMAX. Even people who don't know the Bible still know what you're talking about when you say a a David facing off against a Goliath. He's the universal underdog, hopelessly outgunned, who miraculously finds victory in the face of overwhelming odds. David and Goliath is an all-time favorite children's tale, acted out in vacation Bible school dramas with little songs and robes made from bath towels. Though parts of the story are sort of sanitized for younger audiences, they usually don't act out the part where David cuts off Goliath's head and carries the bloody mess back to King Saul as proof of his victory. The full story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I'd encourage you to read the whole thing on your own if you've never done so. The year is 1035 B.C. The Israelites under King Saul are locked into this stalemate in a battle against the Philistines. For 300 years, there had been bad blood between the Philistines and Israel. When Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan, out of Egypt, he he conquered everything except three cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And those were the hometowns for the clans of the Philistines. The, The Israelites held the hill country, but the Philistines held the flatter plains down towards the Mediterranean Sea. And so the two armies were squared off on either side of the Valley of Elah, The Philistines have a giant of a champion named Goliath who stood just like a Godzilla. I mean, he had nothing but contempt for the people of Israel. So every day for 40 days, Goliath stepped out into the open ground and he issued a challenge. He shouted, give me a man and let us fight, he says in verse 10. It was a challenge to have a battle of champions. Send out your best fighter. Let's settle this mano a mano conmigo, you know, hand-to-hand combat to the death. Winner takes all. It wasn't the rumble in the jungle, it was the melee in the mountains. Goliath challenged their their courage, their bravery, their masculinity. And on a deeper level, it was a challenge to prove whose God was stronger. Was it Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, or this Yahweh that he'd been hearing about? And so for 40 days, Goliath taunted the Israelites, insulted their God. And they were too afraid to do anything about it. Verse 11, it says, when they heard it was Goliath who gave the challenge, they were terrified and they lost all hope. Goliath was getting into their heads. They were starting to believe that this problem was bigger than their God. You ever had a problem do that to you? A big problem that just intimidates you, it gets into your head, it's your first thought in the morning and your last thought at night. You might have a Goliath kind of problem like that, something that's taunting you, something that brings up your fears about you know, unemployment or depression or family strife, memories of abuse, school grades, you know, your past, your future, whatever it is. How long has it taunted you? How long have you believed that that problem is bigger than your God? And then here comes David. He's the youngest in his family, the runt of the litter. His father sent him to take loaves of bread and bricks of cheese to his older brothers who served in Saul's army. Barely a teenager, he had previously been doing the most menial of all household jobs, taking care of the sheep on the mountainside. And now he's promoted to grocery store delivery boy. And he's flabbergasted when he sees what is happening on the front lines of battle. Nothing. Nothing's happening. No one is doing anything. Goliath is being the bully. He's insulting their God. 
and the Israelite army is sitting around playing words with friends. King Saul has even offered a reward to anyone who would be willing to face Goliath in battle. His daughter's hand in marriage and, and no more taxes for the entire family. Literally, a king's ransom. There were no takers. They're staring at their ground, kind of shuffling their sandals in the dirt. And so David speaks up. He starts asking questions. And his older brothers, the same guys who were in total fear of Goliath, show nothing but contempt for this little pipsqueak. Like usual in his family, he's dismissed. He's treated with scorn. In verse 29, David says in frustration, Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? And so David's questions get reported to King Saul. And Saul is so desperate, I mean, he'll try anything except go out and face Goliath himself. So he has an audience with young David. And has David ever fought a giant before? Well, no. Had he ever even seen a giant before? No. Had he ever fought any human being before? No. But David is still all in. Because David has this, this confidence in the power of Yahweh. He tells King Saul that in the wilderness, in the mountains, he had experienced firsthand God's power and protection while guarding his sheep against lions and bears. He had a God-infused confidence that gave him a sense of courage. He was ready to face any conflict, not because he was strong, but because he knew God would be at his side. And so try, Saul tries to prep him for battle with the standard template, you know, body armor, sword, and shield. And David is so skinny, I mean, it's comical. The armor literally falls off him. His little pick arms can't fit through it. Thankfully, David's smart enough to realize that he's got to stick with what he knows, and he uses what he's trained to do, uses the weapon he was used to. He got out his shepherd's sling, which is a common tool for shepherds worldwide. You know, I'm going with our mission trip to Bolivia in a few weeks, and when we're up in the Andes Mountains, we'll see the Quechua Indian women who tend flocks of goats and sheep. They all wear a sash belt around their waist, and if they see some goats straying away from the herd, they whip that belt off in an instant, load it with a rock, and bonk that goat on the noggin, you know, 50 feet away. I mean, the same thing with David. David is a crack shot with his sling. And so the scene is set. A slender, beardless boy, a shepherd with a shepherd's sling who stoops in the creek bed to load up five smooth stones. And facing him is Goliath. He's so big, he's a one-man freak show. He's wearing 125 pounds of armor, probably more than what David weighed. His muscles were just ripped. You know, some people get stuck on the question of, well, how tall was Goliath? The traditional Hebrew text, which dates from about 1,000 A.D., says Goliath was six cubits and a span in height. A cubit was the measure of the distance from the tip of your finger to your elbow, and it kind of got standardized at about 18 inches. A span was the width of the spread of your hand, kind of standardized at nine inches. That would have made Goliath nine feet, nine inches tall. But other copies of the Old Testament, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date from the second century B.C., as well as the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, that was the Bible Jesus used in his day, and the first century Jewish historian Josephus, they all say it was four cubits, not six, which would have made Goliath uh, uh, a little over seven feet tall. So whether it's four cubits or six cubits, it's still a lot of cubits, okay? He's big, and he's twirling this 25-pound spear as easily as a cheerleader twirls a baton. David walks out in front of everybody. Goliath can't believe his eyes. You know, is this all you got? I mean, he scoffs at him, calls him stick boy. In verse 43, he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I mean, it's like a toothpick versus a tyrannosaurus. 
What odds would you give David? Well, not good. And then in verse 48 it says, As Goliath moved closer to to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Suddenly David is no longer kneeling at the brook collecting stones. He's running. Well, everybody expected him to run, but he's going the wrong way. He's running toward Goliath, not away from the giant, but towards him. So their eyes are popping out of their heads. I mean, no one ran toward Goliath. You might as well be running off a cliff or running straight into a brick wall. But because of David's confidence in God, his courage led him into the battle. One stone zinged to Goliath's forehead, and that was it. The stone hit Goliath with skull-crushing force, and it was game over. So if there's one thing we can learn from the story about David that we can gain from Psalm 29 is that when we discover confidence in who God is, we will also discover the courage to run toward our circumstances and face our problems with the peace of Christ firm in our hearts. I think one of the best things any Christian can ever do is memorize Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I think we need God's courage about 100 times a day. I see real courage in the person facing painful rehab after hip or knee replacement surgery. Real courage in the folks who are fighting cancer, who face those chemo treatments that are sometimes worse than the disease. I see courage in the person who's finally willing to face reality, discovers the strength to leave an abusive relationship or seek help for an addiction. I see the courage of God in a person who decides to live for Christ, even when faced by ridicule or rejection from peers and family. I see God's courage in the person who's willing to start again after a failure, after a falling, after a stumble. In God's grace, Christ lifts them up, dusts them off, enables them to begin again. You know, that's what happened to King David. He made some bad decisions, like his adultery with Bathsheba. David's bad decisions and sinful actions, they took him away from God's will, but not out of God's reach. And so God was able to restore him. And that takes courage. There would be painful consequences that could not be undone. David had to live with them. But he did rise from the ashes, and God continued to use him and give him a useful life. In some ways, being blessed by God with courage is kind of like a child learning to jump into a swimming pool for the very first time. Because there is a natural fear. I mean, you can drown in water. But the child trusts mom or dad who's waiting for them in the pool to catch them. The child might still be afraid, but jumps anyway because of the relationship with the mom or the dad. That's the blessing of God's courage. That's the good news of the gospel. Because we trust in his greatness and love, we can jump into life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the shower, at breakfast, during your commute, whenever, say it a hundred times a day, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Courage means being willing to step into the fray in spite of our fears. Being willing to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done means being willing to sail into uncharted waters, to go into uncomfortable situations because it's the right thing to do. Courage, trusting in God's great power, gives you the strength, gives you the peace. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the 
life of King David, all his ups and downs and missteps and strengths, Lord, and how we can learn from his spiritual journey and how we too can develop courage, not because we're so great, but because you are. You're the powerful God who breaks the cedars. You're the powerful God who is stronger than the mightiest winds. No matter what this world has, Lord, you are greater. And so we can trust you with whatever problems come our way. Give us the courage for the living of these days. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.